1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In New York, I'm John Fassman. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Over the past four months, Volodymyr Zelensky, Ukraine's president, has kept up a steady stream of digital public appearances. His wife, Elena, is a more private person. Our correspondent caught up with her in Kyiv. And seven centuries ago, the Black Death changed the course of human history. Scientists are still arguing over its origins in a debate that could shape the world's understanding of how pandemics arise. But first... America's Supreme Court tends to release high-profile decisions at the end of its term. With just two weeks left before its summer recess, yesterday the court issued the most expansive Second Amendment ruling in over a decade. Along partisan lines, the court struck down a New York state law that restricted people's ability to carry concealed guns in public. Tom King, the president of the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association, one of the plaintiffs in the case, hailed the court's ruling.
2: It's a huge victory for the lawful gun owners of New York State. And it's going to change the playing field from here on out. And it's a great day for freedom in the United States.
1: Joe Biden said he was disappointed by the Supreme Court's decision. uh, I think it's a bad decision. I I think it's not reasoned accurately, but I'm disappointed. The ruling comes as Congress prepares to pass the most significant federal gun control legislation in
3: decades. Until 2008, the Second Amendment was seen as little more than a relic of America's early years. Steve Mazey is the Economist Supreme Court correspondent. It was widely assumed to protect a collective right for state militias to be armed. It says a well-regulated militia, being necessary to the security of a free state, the right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. But in District of Columbia versus Heller 14 years ago, a 5-4 to four decision, the Supreme Court ruled that this right provides not only for the needs of a well-regulated militia, but for the liberty of individuals to keep firearms in their homes for self-defense. And yesterday in NYSERPA versus Bruin, uh, the court expanded that right to include carrying a weapon outside one's home. Justice Clarence Thomas wrote that opinion He said people don't generally sit at the dinner table with weapons strapped to their belts. The right to bear arms must mean that you can leave your home with those guns. It was a six to three decision. And Steve, explain the case the court just decided. What
1: restrictions does the ruling strike down?
3: The successful target in Bruin was a 109-year-old law in New York that has required gun owners who want a concealed carry license to show proper cause for that, some special justification. General fear of crime or skittishness are not good enough. Applicants must justify the request by pointing to specific circumstances that make them vulnerable to violence. So people like retired police officers, people under protection orders... Jurors and sensitive criminal cases, these are people who might merit a concealed carry license. But ordinary citizens uh, wishing to arm themselves while venturing outdoors had little chance of getting one of these permits, especially denizens of New York City. The requirement for special need was challenged by individuals who applied for licenses to carry a handgun in public based on a more general interest in self defense. And the Supreme Court has ruled in their favor.
1: And can you explain the court's reasoning? How did it reach this decision?
3: Well, that's where it gets interesting. Justice Thomas's top line is this. We know of no other constitutional right that an individual may exercise only after demonstrating to government officers some special need. He essentially argues that no gun regulation today is acceptable under the Second Amendment, unless an analog to it can be found in the history of gun regulation in America. Now, he spends the vast bulk of his opinion looking to historical sources to show that general prohibitions on carrying a concealed weapon are not found in the record. In his dissent, Justice Breyer argues that this historical approach is quite fraught, uh, justices are not historians. They are not qualified to do this kind of work and answer such complex questions. He also says there are plenty of counter examples in the historical record showing that there have been bans on carrying weapons in public. He says this is just the wrong approach. It ties legislators' hands in ways that prevent them from confronting the epidemic of gun violence that we have in 2022.
1: And Steve, what are the practical implications of this for gun control, for state and local gun policy across America?
3: In most of the country, not much will change yet. Half of the states already have so-called constitutional carry laws that require no permit or license at all to carry a weapon. Of the remaining 25 states, most of those are shall issue states, which means that most people who want a license will get one as long as they dot their I's and cross their T's. The ruling in Bruin should not pose a problem for the gun safety bill that just passed the Senate late Thursday night. Uh, This is the bipartisan reform that got 50 Democratic votes and 15 Republican votes in the wake of the mass shootings in Buffalo, New York and Uvalde, Texas. Bruin does not call directly into question enhanced background checks or red flag laws, which are the main features of this budding bill. And what about those states like New York that do currently have restrictions? Well, the quickest and most discernible effect will be evident in six or seven states, including New York, California, New Jersey, Hawaii, and a few others, where officials exercise some judgment and discretion about who merits a concealed carry permit and who does not. All comers who fit basic requirements will get to carry in those states. But limits on carrying guns in particular venues will still be possible. So perhaps in stadiums or college campuses, maybe on the subway. But the Supreme Court's decision means that the streets of metropolises like New York City, Los Angeles, are likely to see a surge of people carrying hidden guns in their pockets and purses.
1: Steve, as you mentioned, this ruling comes weeks after a spate of shootings in the U.S. at an elementary school, at a grocery store in Buffalo and elsewhere. What's been the reaction to this decision?
3: Well, reaction has been just as divided as America is on this question. New York's governor, Kathy Hochul, condemned the ruling. She said she found it shocking.
0: Today, the Supreme Court is sending us backwards in our efforts to protect families and prevent gun violence. And it's particularly painful that this came down at this moment. We are still dealing with families in pain from mass shootings that have occurred, the loss of life, their beloved children and grandchildren.
3: Meanwhile, gun rights advocates uh, cheered this Supreme Court decision. Uh, Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina called it a great day for the Second Amendment. He said the Supreme Court's decision is yet another example of reinforcing the concept that the Second Amendment is an individual right rooted in the ability to defend oneself and one's property.
1: And are you surprised, or is this really in keeping with the Roberts Court's views on guns more broadly?
3: I'm not at all surprised to see the Supreme Court strike down New York's law. But the historical test that Thomas advances in his majority opinion is rather reactionary. And here, I have to modify a bit my claim earlier on that the Senate's freshly passed bill is completely safe. I think it is in the short run and probably in the long run, But a strict application of Thomas's historical approach means that red flag laws, laws preventing domestic abusers from buying firearms, might not be constitutional since America has never before had regulations quite like those. And uh, indeed, the very concept of domestic abuse did not even exist until well into the 20th century. So my biggest question moving forward is how aggressively the lower courts will try to strike down all manner of gun laws based on this historical analog test. Bruin is probably just a first step to an even stronger Second Amendment. And Steve, the court will soon recess for the summer.
1: What are the other decisions that are still to come?
3: Well, we have nine decisions still to come. A lot of those nine are big ones. Uh, We have immigration policy Indian rights, religion in public schools, the power of the EPA to regulate greenhouse gases, and of course, the monumental case that could overturn Roe versus Wade and erase the constitutional right to abortion.
1: All right, Steve, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me on, John. For more on this subject, listen to last week's episode of The Economist Asks, which features Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut on the prospects for federal gun control legislation. Since Russia rolled tanks into Ukraine in February, Volodymyr Zelensky has become one of the world's most prominent leaders. Appearing in the U.S. Congress and in parliaments around the world via video link, he is the face of resistance in the West. At home in Ukraine, though, his wife, Olena Zelenska is just as well-known. In a time of national crisis and grave personal danger, she's trying to hold the country together. Our Ukraine-based correspondent, Oliver Carroll, caught up with her in Kyiv.
4: It's not my first visit to the presidential compound in the time of war. So you can see a certain evolution. There is a certain sense, as outside of Kyiv, that things are becoming a little bit more relaxed than when it was when we went to see President Zelensky back at the end of March. At the same time, the sniper positions are still there, the sandbags are still there, the barbed wire is everywhere. I was there to interview the first lady, Olena Zelenska. She looked as if she was carrying the trauma and the worries of a nation on her shoulder, that this was very visibly running through her. And I think on her face was writ large that conflict that for many people, even in Kiev, life is continuing as normal. And yet for her, for her family, for her husband and for the country, things are still very much on a war footing.
1: So let's talk about your conversation. How did it start? What were your first impressions of her?
4: Well, before it even started, we had a little bit of a cameo from the president himself, who, upon hearing that his wife was in the building, decided to search her out and found her in the courtyard posing for us. This was a funny scene. He didn't realize we were there. We came out startled. Uh, He said, I was only looking to see my wife. (laughs) It was a very tender moment. You can tell the two are very, very close. So we had that before we even started the conversation. Zelenska came out. She's not a natural interviewee. She's quite a closed woman, modest. And again, you saw the contrast with her sort of very media-hungry, jolly other half. But when we started the interview, she was getting into her flow. And she's a very clever woman. She's a script writer. That's essentially how they grew together. She was the script writer. She was the performer. She lit up when she started talking about their youth together in this industrial town in Krivirog. She painted this very romantic picture of teenage sweethearts. She was looking back to those summers spent in their youth, listening to music, going to the rivers, hanging around with friends. They spent a lot of time together. I <laughs> Of course, things are slightly different now, and she was saying that she isn't able to see Volodymyr on a daily basis, perhaps only once or twice a week.
1: And how else has life changed for her since the war began?
4: On the morning of the 24th of February, things changed absolutely dramatically. She recounted those moments of being woken up by the sounds of... She thought it was fireworks. She looked next to her. Volodymyr was no longer in bed. She went up to the next room and saw that he was already dressed and ready to go to the office. He said it started. Everyone knew what it started meant. And for Zelenska, she had the task of telling the children what had happened. And she, again, recounted in a very emotional way how she went down the corridor trembling from the thoughts. And when she came round to the kids' room, she'd already realised they knew what was happening. And her task at the time was to keep a smile on her face, to say everything was great. They were going on a trip to the country, wherever that would be. But as she said, by the end of the day, her cheek muscles were hurting because she'd been smiling in an artificial way for so long. This was a very dramatic moment. The reporting at the time was making it very clear that for the Russians, target number one was her husband, and target number two, three, four were her and her family. And that can't have not played a role in the way she was looking at the world. Of course, she's now back in Kyiv. And there is a sense in the capital that people are, are trying to live a new normal.
5: But
4: as she says... In the interview herself, this is an illusion. This is people doing their best, trying to live as normal lives as they can, when in fact people understand it really isn't normal at all.
1: So has she herself resumed any of her normal duties?
4: Before the war, she did pretty much the things that any first lady did. She looked to work with other first ladies. In fact, she did a virtual conference in the year before things started. She looked to improve school dinners, when the war started, those things necessarily weren't relevant. She wasn't allowed to do anything. She had to stay low. But as soon as she was given the go-ahead from the presidential office to start working again, she began various projects to rescue children in Kharkiv, in Chernigov. She evacuated those kids. She also evacuated the kids who'd been maimed and injured by the shelling. And here she was actually helped by many of the first ladies who she developed this network with. So in fact, when a plane load of Ukrainian children and their mothers arrived in Paris airport, they were met at the airport by Brigitte Macron, which the first lady said she was very appreciative of.
1: And so, Ali, what are her biggest concerns for her country?
4: One of the biggest impacts Vladimir Putin's war has had in Ukraine is to see its young people flee the country in their millions. And Zelensky worries that with the flight of so many of these Ukrainians, the country's because young people are the
5: main potential of disappeared human potential is the biggest any country.
4: She said she wanted everyone who had left to return, that she considered human potential to be the greatest asset of any country, but that she understood that many of them still felt that returning was not safe
5: enough.
4: She understood, you know, for many uh, parents, they were receiving their sons and daughters in body bags. And the war is still ranging in, in the East. Her words were, now is not a time to build, now is a time to protect. But, you know, the, the question of what happens with Ukraine's youngest generations, that's going to be something which will dog this country for many decades to come. And how is her own family doing? Well, some of the things that she was telling us about during her time of isolation, she was essentially tending to the home front. She was looking after the kids' homework. She was talking to her daughter as she was preparing to apply to university and she still hopes she will go to university. But the thing which I think probably will strike any parents out there was a conversation with her son. <laughs> I mean, her son is nine years old, nine years to go before he reaches the age where he might go to university, but the one thought that he has in his mind is that he wants to become a soldier. And for Zelensky, she obviously hopes that by the time he reaches adulthood, that he will have had the chance to live many years in in a free and prosperous Ukraine. Time will tell on that front.
1: All right, Ali, thanks so much for joining us today. Pleasure. The film Monty Python and the Holy Grail puts a comedic spin on the horror of the bubonic plague. In one scene, a cart loaded with corpses is pushed through the streets of medieval Britain as peasants drag out the bodies of their friends and neighbors. But amongst the dead, one man is being hauled to the wagon, alive. I'm not dead! Yeah, He says he's not dead.
2: Yes, he is. I'm not! He isn't. Well, he will be soon. He's very
1: ill. I'm getting better. No, you're not. You'll be stone dead in a moment. While clearly satirical, this take on the Black Death contains a kernel of truth. The disease killed millions and was so contagious that the slightest hint of illness turned people against each other. No one was sure how the disease spread or where it came from. Modern scientists now know how the plague spreads, but a debate still rages over its origins. New research suggests there may now be an answer. The Black Death was the most significant, deadliest
2: pandemic in recorded history. It started around 1346. It swept through Europe, the Middle East, and North Africa, lasted about eight years, and killed up to 60% of the population.
1: Gilad Amit is a science correspondent for The Economist. Scientists
2: have known for a while that it's caused by a bacterium called Yersinia pestis, which has coexisted with humans for thousands of years. But the reasons for the sudden explosion of virulence in the 14th century remains unknown.
1: So do scientists have any clues about this?
2: The Black Death. In 2012, there were a team of scientists in Beijing that made a real leap forward in our understanding of the origins of the disease. They sequenced genomes from plague bacteria found in animals and humans all across the world. And they found that there were four different lineages of plague, one of which was responsible for the Black Death of the 14th century. And they were able to calculate that these four different lineages all diverged at a single event called a Big Bang, which would have been over the course of a few years. And they estimate that this happened between about 1140 and 1340, suggesting that this Big Bang might have been a very important precursor of the Black Death. And new research is suggesting it may have been even more significant than that.
1: So tell us about this new research.
2: So the latest research is really a remarkable detective story. A team led by Maria Spirou at the University of Tübingen in Germany track down seven bodies that were exhumed from two cemeteries in Kyrgyzstan, and they found the skulls of these bodies in a museum in St. Petersburg. And they were able to match these bodies to tombstones, which identified the bodies as having been buried in 1338, 1339, and also identified that they died from some form of pestilence, which had widely been assumed to be plague. And the researchers took samples of DNA from the teeth of these bodies, and they found two things. First, they found that some of the bodies really did die from the plague. And second, that the genomes of the bacteria found in the teeth would have been from a common ancestor of the four different lineages, which suggests that the Big Bang didn't happen until after the plague hit these villages in Kyrgyzstan, suggesting that it happened in the first half of the 14th century, almost immediately before the plague swept through Europe, suggesting it was a really critical event.
1: And so does the team have any suggestion as to how the ancestor came about, how it started? Uh, nobody needs
2: telling today that the origins of pandemics are contentious subjects, <laughs> even just a few years after the fact, so let alone centuries. But Dr. Spiru suspects it began in marmots. They're a species of rodent which still carry plague in Central Asia, and they could well have been the source of a spillover event. And this isn't such a fanciful speculation because diseases transfer from animals to humans all the time. The process is called zoonosis. It's widely believed to be the way COVID-19 began spreading in humans. And so it's a plausible guess.
1: And so how has their research been received?
2: So the genetics seems to check out. But in terms of pinning down the timings accurately, more samples of ancient DNA are needed just to make sure that there aren't missing branches of various family trees. The could be more significant. And the timings are really important here because Dr. Spiro's proposal conflicts with a a very high-profile alternative that is championed, among others, by a historian of medicine called Monica Green, which suggests that the Black Death spread westwards into Europe and indeed eastwards into China by the advance of the Mongol army under, not Genghis Khan, but under his successors. And there's lots of evidence for plague and societal disruption accompanying the Mongol advance. The only problem is that this happened in the 1200s, which is decades, if not a century earlier than Dr. Spirou suggests.
1: So this is interesting, Gilad, but what does it really matter whether the plague began in 1200 or 1300? Why is there so much scientific energy going into this question of the Black Death's origins? So if you'd ask
2: this question Three years ago, it might have been harder to give a convincing answer, but now it's obvious that understanding where, when and how pandemics begin, what kind of societies they spread in, what sort of interaction within the environment can lead them to happen, what makes a society vulnerable to a plague is hugely important for preventing future ones from arising. And more specifically, plague in its bubonic form, as well as some of the other forms in which it manifests, has never gone away. It's endemic today in animals on all continents, and spillover events continue to be recorded even in the 21st century. And though we have treatments for it today, with all pathogens, the risk exists that it can resurface in a form that's resistant to some of our treatments, and then it could cause another pandemic that we'd have no cure for. All right, this
1: was fascinating, Gilad. Thanks so much for joining us today. No problem, John. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editors this week are Marguerite Howell and Chris Impey. Our sound engineer is Will Rowe, with assistance from Timo Saila. Our senior producers are Sam Westron, Jack Gill, and John Joe Devlin. Our U.S. audio correspondent is Stevie Hertz. Our creative producer is William Warren. Our producers are Rory Galloway and Alize Jean-Baptiste, and assistant producer Abbas Oyosundairo with extra production help this week from Emily Elias. We'll all see you back here on Monday.
0: Hi, I'm Daniel,
1: founder of Pretty Litter.